0: Wow, I am super excited for this week's episode. It's one of the most exceptional conversations I've had. Today's guest, just to give you an understanding, has a degree from Dartmouth, MIT, Harvard, and is a trained neuroscientist, and only launched their company at the second part of their career at 38 years old. Today's guest is an honor to introduce Dr. Frida Poli, CEO of an incredible company, Pymetrics, in the HR tech space. She's raised $56 million to date and has built an incredible organization. Now, if you listen to any of the previous episodes, you know how our conversations work. It's a soul-to-soul experience. These conversations are raw, emotional, vulnerable. We go into depth about our journeys, our journeys about the ups and downs of life, what drives us, and how we can make a bigger impact. This conversation with Frida is truly exceptional, and we go deep. So if you are someone that doesn't like to get vulnerable or change your life for the better, please don't listen to this because it will make you want to change. We speak about our upbringing, family life, raising children, mental health, and what it means to go through hard times and what it takes to build a great company. Frida, thank you for this incredible conversation, your honesty, vulnerability, and your willingness to share. I know the impact that conversation has made on my life, and I know the impact it's going to make on others too. So when you, the listener, listen to this once, twice, three times, each time is a new, unique experience. And you'll be able to learn so many things to apply to your life to make a difference. So have a great listen. So if you have a friend who you think I benefit too, please share it with them. Now, this is important, so please listen. In order to reach more people, to inspire more people, to create change in their life, in order to make a bigger impact and difference, please subscribe and leave a review. Hey, everyone. I am super, super excited today to have with us our dear, dear friend, an incredible guest and someone that has an amazing story. Our guest today is the one and only Frida Polly, Dr. Frida Polly, I should say, the CEO of a phenomenal company called Pymetrics. And if you've not heard about it, I highly advise you to go check it out because they are a game changing company for the past, since 2015, when they've been around. But Frida has the most amazing story possible. She is a neuroscientist. She went to Dartmouth, Harvard, MIT, Right. So if that was not, if that's not enough for you, I don't know what is. She also is a mother, a mother of, if I'm not mistaken, three beautiful children. And she is just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. So I am super excited to have her with us today to share her story, the lessons she learned that got her to where she is now, so we can apply that to our own life. So Frida, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely. So excited to be here.
0: You're welcome. So Frida, let me get this straight. Harvard, MIT, Dartmouth. Neuroscientist, degree after degree after degree.
1: We I'm, over, I'm over-educated, yes. Over- <laughs> <laughs> your, audience, your audience should definitely know that. You know, it's not a requirement for having a job. I just happen to be over-educated, yes.
0: <laughs> well, I hope your children are going to be able to satisfy that. Uh, no,
1: need- maybe my kids won't even graduate high school. What can I say? You know, <laughs> just, just to uh, be different from their parents.
0: And would you be okay with that?
1: I mean, yeah, I think it's, look, I think everyone has their own path in life. Um, So, I mean, I guess I'd say a couple of things. I think everyone has their own path in life. And so I think, um, you know, I think I would definitely not expect, you know, any or all of my kids to necessarily follow my path. Um, I do actually think there's value to education. I mean, I, so I think that I have mixed feelings about education. I think education is such a wonderful mind expanding tool, right? I mean, I watched this documentary recently on um, inmates, some of whom were basically incarcerated for life getting a bachelor's degree and how it totally made them think differently about the world, right? So I think education is such a gift. Um, And I also think that unfortunately, it's very expensive, um, time consuming, and it's not accessible. It's not, you know, bachelor's degree is not accessible. I mean, in the US, it's only a third of people have it. So, so while I think education is fantastic, I don't think it should be a barrier entry for a job and i think that's where i feel strongly that you know you should not you know force someone to have a bachelor's degree in order to earn access to to all these different jobs unfortunately that is what we do right now um and so that's what i'm sort of less excited about when it comes to um college degrees
0: so then let's play this scenario through our head over here your kid comes home says mom I just graduated high school i'm not interested in going to college i want to take let's say a gap year a three-year gap whatever it is i want to explore my own passion whatever yeah. that passion is would you allow to do that
1: yeah i probably i think i would you know and i think like i mean i had a, a mentor of mine whose child um wanted to be a dancer and this was also another overeducated, you know ivy ivy league trained person um and you know this child had you know thought very carefully through uh this life choice had really found like sort of figured out all the sorts of ways she needed to prepare herself for that um and so I think that you know and again I mean I, I think I definitely want to sit down with you know because again we are lucky that we can afford you know for our kids to to go to college um so I think then it's less about like well you don't have access to it so then you'd have to think like okay well what is the reason behind this and and everything um and so you know I think I would probably still encourage it because I do think education is so critical and I've learned, you know, just, I love learning. Um, But I also think there's so many ways of learning in life, you know, and I think a college degree is just one way of learning. And I think if you had a totally different pathway and you wanted to move to Africa and I don't know, do something crazy and, you know, experiential and, you know, learn that way, I think, you know, there are many, many different pathways to learning, so
0: right for sure and part of the some of the best learning is obviously just self-learning you know like being an Absolutely. entrepreneur yourself and experiencing yeah. you know you can only um we only get to learn you know first i've got the quote quotes missing me but like you know real hands-on experience is something that cannot be compensated for anything you know you can learn from the books on the books and you can read another book another book and always feel like you never you're never going to know enough and therefore you, because you feel like you never know enough you'll never start totally right? so you yeah. have to go out there so like yeah.
1: And and now my 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 teenager is going to find this podcast when she is uh, you know debating whether she should go to college. She'll be like, mom, you said. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to ask what you. Is this podcast hidden. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll make sure she doesn't find it.
1: Exactly. But what I have to ask you.
0: you no, know, most times when someone is, you obviously have people that love learning, and therefore they can yeah. stay in school for for multiple, multiple, multiple.
1: Years. Yep. Yep.
0: But you also have the aspect when people are going, trying to over, always overcompensate is mm-hmm. always because they're running away from something, they're running away from sure. themselves, or they feel like they need to prove, you know, whoever it was, their dad, their mom, or something like that. Where, where were you running to?
1: Um, well, so, you know, I th- so I've always been a nerd, I think nerds like school. So let's just start with that. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just love learning. I love school. I was like the kid that always did their homework. Like I was a nerd. Um, So I wasn't, I don't think I was running from, I think I was running to. And I think, you know, what ended up um, leading to my becoming a neuroscientist um, was I had a family member of mine who had a very severe mental illness um, that I watched, you know, for my entire growing up period. Um, And this person was so impaired um, and had such difficulty navigating the world. And, you know, it it was just a real struggle. And so as a result, it really made me fascinated with the brain because, you know, this person had actually, interestingly enough, had had a career as a musician, um, had been a, you know, sort of concert trained um, violinist, um, and then, you know, essentially had a, you know, very severe um, mental illness sort of take over their life um, in a way that, you know, I would, has taken over their life for the rest of of this person's life, right, Um, and really never recovered. And so I think that seeing that, I sort of, was very you know and seeing it at a very young age like I was very it was I was very impressionable and really it made me want to learn more about you know the human brain and why certain things happen to the human brain what can we do about them I mean it just sort of triggered my sense of empathy as well just watching this person struggle for so long was just so hard um and and that's what led me to neuroscience and it was a very fortunate time because for, for me to become interested in it because brain image. So, you know, prior to brain imaging, which was essentially sort of discovered or basically created, I guess, in 1988, um, basically the functional magnetic resonance, resonance imaging was first done in 1988. So until then, to study the brain, you had to like either torture poor monkeys or, you know, cut off heads of rats or whatever. And it was just like, wow, I would never be able to do that. Um, And so because, you know, fMRI and brain imaging came into existence, essentially, you know, shortly before, um, you know, I I graduated college and started entering grad school, it was just a very fortunate time that I was like, wow, this is and I remember distinctly taking a class in brain imaging my last year in college and was like, wow, this is what I want to do. And so for me, it was more like a passion to learn more about, you know, the human brain and sort of all of the ways in which, all of the ways in which it's beautiful, and then all of the ways in which, you know, it can, it, it can somehow, things can go awry, and someone can really struggle and suffer, so, and I think those two things are tied, you know, I read this book, and I forget what the title of the book is, but, you know, if you look at sort of mental illness, or, you know, um, other types of disorders, whether, you know, it's schizophrenia, or autism, or dyslexia, or whatever, like, if they had no value, right? They would have actually been sort of, you know, genetically um, extinguished from the gene pool, right? And it, the whole book was basically saying, like, you know, people, you know, schizophrenia is on a spectrum of things um, that often also leads to family members of these relatives being very creative, being very artistic, blah blah blah. So yes, occasionally you get someone with schizophrenia, but in that sort of family pool, you get artists and musicians and like all the rest of it, right? And so the learning for me was that the brain is so is so different and there are so many like amazing things that the brain can do and then sometimes something will go too wrong on one end of the spectrum and then it becomes something that's you know very impairing to someone but that diversity in the brain neurodiversity as we call it is just is something to be embraced and i and i really believe that you know and then you know i mean again like my family also has you know strong history of dyslexia ADHD, mood disorders, I mean, a whole host of, you know, uh, what, what, what some people call disabilities and certainly are disabilities, but the other way to think about it is, you know, through the lens of neurodiversity. And I think when you have a family history of that, it really makes you just think about all of the ways in which the brain is different and, 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 and the amazing things that can come out of that rather than only seeing, you know, sort of the, the negatives. So.
0: Well, you can also look at it I mean, that's amazing. And thank you for that whole history. Sure. Incredible to see, you know, all the you know the incredible, incredible books and people writing about it, especially in the early days of fMRI. Yeah. Um, you know, especially now you have so many books to- talking about it. And learning about, I guess, mental illness and learning mm-hmm. about how our mind works mm-hmm. gives us the ability, obviously, to deal with a lot of uh, these things. Yeah. Um, but instead of looking at it as like, you know, this is someone that has a disability, this is someone that ha- obviously, you know, is, I wouldn't call it, um, wouldn't call it a disability, something that they more of like a special need. Like they can never call someone retired. call them special needs because they have certain things, capabilities, that are much higher than you, us, than other types of people. Yeah. Right? Obviously every single person has their purpose. But going sure. back to growing up like that, I mean you obviously have to grow up much quicker. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean look, I think that, you know, when you have any kind of, you know, family history of you know um somebody who has any kind of special need right um you know it it def- definitely impacts the whole family you know um and i think it just makes you it it just changes the family dynamic in a way and it definitely makes um you know children in that family definitely more um you know need to sort of develop additional skills i mean i i see this actually in um you know we have a, another relative that has a, a child with very you know significant Uh, a a significant genetic disorder that has led to all sorts of developmental delays and you know in that family like it really does like the family centers around this child and you know obviously the two other children you know have to adapt in a way that you know my three kids you Mm -hmm. know for better or worse you know have not had to so i think whenever you're dealing with a special situation like that um you know it really makes it does impact the entire family unit um hopefully in a way that's positive but sometimes not always i think in our family i think what ended up happening was that um, or at least for me i just developed a a strong empathy for people um who who i just it just made me much more empathic towards folks that um you know just had that that you know needed more um you know, resources and, and, and all of that. And I think um, sort of like, I think it can sort of take you out of a bubble and not that we live in a bubble, but I'm just saying, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty. I did, I was, didn't grow up in a war zone. I didn't, you know, so I could have grown up in a bubble, but I think that because you, when you, whenever you see people that are struggling for whatever reason, it really kind of takes you out of that bubble. And you just realize kind of like, you know, that suffering is kind of like a part of humanity that, you know, is, is very common actually, um, and it can come in, in many different forms. And, you know, in, in our case, it was watching someone suffer and, and it was hard, you know, so.
0: It's uh, totally <laughs> true. It's like, this is an- <laughs> it's, not
1: a, it's not a happy topic, but it is, you know, it's a real topic, right? Because I think a lot of times when you have any kind of, you know, history of that, whether it's mental illness or alcoholism or whatever the, whatever the thing is, right. I think a lot of people are very, you know, you might feel ashamed. You might feel, Oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's embarrassing. Nobody else is suffering with this. And, you know, I think more and more, I think hopefully we can live in a society where people are more open about the fact that these things happen, you know, in large proportion that everybody has some family member that has, or not just one, but multiple or whatever that families just are full of, you know, like I don't want to say either. Just they're full of things that we, as children, think are embarrassing or shameful or whatever. And the more we can try to break out of that, I think, the better. And it just sort of again goes back to this idea that you know fundamentally we're all human, and you know humanity is you know has you know millennia's worth of history of suffering, and that can come in in many different formats, you know. So.
0: And a hundred percent, you know. And I always think is one of my theories are is that let's say for hypothetically is let's say only 200 problems in the world you know that a person could go through every single person is going to go through those 200 problems but in their own narrative right yeah what as humanity what we could do is we can't necessarily compare but we could identify with each other on those issues and share our shared experiences in order to connect and help each other go through those together for sure Um,
1: yeah but one
0: of the the things is go ahead
1: no nothing And, and you know at the same time i think that like you know i think it's just like any other you know any other thing. Like, I think everybody's experience is unique. Right. And so, you know, you never want to try to put yourself in someone's shoes and say, Oh gosh, because I had this experience, I now understand everything. Like that's, you know, I don't think that that's the the right approach. I'm, you know, I think that, um, but I think that this experience and, and, you know, associated experiences just made me more aware of all of the different ways in which people, um, you know, can, can experience the world. And I think that was, you know, really important. Sort of, you know, learning, learning for me. So, yeah, I,
0: I know, and I know this is an entrepreneur, entrepreneurship podcast. So we're yes, to- I
1: know, we're a little off <laughs> topic here, but yes,
0: <laughs> we're, we're late, I relate that one point to entrepreneurship is that's very funny because I was recently speaking for founder, and I think multiple people could I could agree with this. Um, is that you have to allow founders. To make every single mistake in the book and go through that experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You
0: have to read the hard things about hard things and zero to one mm-hmm. and sound experience and try to replicate their type mm-hmm. of thing. But you yep. have to understand, for example, you are showing up here today, Frida is showing up today as all the micro decisions and micro macro decisions she made mm-hmm. for the past however many years, right? Yep. And yep. all the things that you went through, that's how you show up and that's how you're able to lead your company, you right. know, everything like that. So yep. you're calling someone else's formula won't work. And the same thing, entrepreneurship, having that experience and going yep. through that is the only yep. way to create, become a successful founder. And, yep. you know, obviously don't make the same mistake twice, but go through that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But, and also
1: like, and, and, you know, on the topic of entrepreneurship, I do think, you know, it's really interesting because I think Brad Feld has written about this. I think it's Brad Feld. I think he's been fairly open about sort of having, you know, struggles, you know, struggles with a mood disorder. And, you know, there's been lots of, I think, research done that, you know, you know, entrepreneurship is very stressful. And it's sort of the under discussed sort of underbelly, let's say of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I myself have also had similar struggles in terms of like, you know, it can be very stressful. And, you know, again, I come from this family history of, you know, certain predispositions and, you know, have certainly struggled with you know a mood disorder um at times and i think it's you know and i think it is the underdiscussed one of the underdiscussed aspects of being a founder is that like it's an amazing job it's incredible it's just so inspiring you 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 really feel like my gosh i'm bringing something to the world hopefully you feel this way that I, that's really going to help people change people's lives whatever but at the same time it's it's very hard you know there's moments of time where you're just like wow i don't know if i can do this anymore and it's also fairly lonely because, you know, you're the founder, like, and so therefore, or, you know, even if you have a co-founder, I think, you know, you're a founder. So like other people are along the journey with you, but they're not like, you know, sort of out there leading, (laughs) leading the charge. So like, you're the one who's responsible for leading them in a good direction. Um, So anyways, the only reason I say that is because I think that, again, it's back to, I think it's a pretty under-discussed like issue where, you know, it's hard to be a founder. It's hard to be in startups, Um, it's also an amazing thing. I would never, you know, be anything else. Um, But I think we just have to realize that it's, you know, there's a sort of under-discussed aspect of it. Um, And I think, again, the more we can talk about it, I think the less sort of shame or secrecy there is to it, um, I think the better, because then we can just sort of be open to the fact that, you know, it's back to everybody has struggles and, you know, it can be hard, so.
0: So then let's start fixing it now and start talking about it.
1: (laughs) exactly yeah and I think like I mean I'm fairly open about all this stuff because again I think um you know having spent so much time as a neuroscientist I, I really do think that if we are not transparent about all of the things that can go wrong could go wrong are wrong things that we're struggling with and we just present this sort of you know sort of I don't want to say fake that's too strong a word but this sort of like cheery rosy image I think that doesn't serve people well because then when they hit a stumbling block and they start you know having a lot of anxiety or depression or whatever they might be like oh my god what's wrong with me I'm the only one I'm you know I'm at, like there's something wrong with me and instead of normalizing and saying actually you know I think it's like some crazy statistics like where 20 percent of you know founders or something have you know fairly significant episodes of you know anxiety depression and, and all the rest of it you know and you and again even the hard things about the hard things right like Ben Horowitz talks about like you know crying you know at night and and I've heard that from other you know male founders like curled up in a ball crying like a baby right And I think the more we talk about that, the better, because then when a younger generation of founders comes along and, you know, they experience all the highs and the euphoria and this, that, and the other, and then they hit a roadblock and, you know, they're crying like a baby, then they, you know, male, female, whatever gender, whatever race, then they won't feel like, my gosh, what's wrong with me. They'll think, oh, okay, this is just part of the journey and I have to expect it. You know what I mean? So I think it's important.
0: Do you remember the first time you cried over entrepreneurship?
1: I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a crier. <laughs> meaning like I don't yell, I cry. So if I get really upset, I'm like, ah. um, so uh, the first time I cried about entrepreneurship, I, I don't know too many times to count. Um, really? <laughs> I think it's, you know, again, because men are less likely to cry. I think it's probably more notable when, you know, a grown man of like some age, whatever, like ends up crying like a baby. I've cried, you know, way too many times. Um, I've cried in meetings. I've cried in town halls. Like, But again, I think not because I'm like some waterworks person, but because that's how I experience stress. Like when I get really stressed out, I'm most most likely to cry. Um, And, you know, and I think that the feedback I've gotten from people about that, and, and again, I've always been embarrassed when it's happened, but then the feedback I've gotten is like, wow, like that was really, that made us think not more highly of you, that's the wrong word, but it was nice to see just being vulnerable because again, it's not something necessarily that people always see in their you know, and their leaders. Um, so again, it is what it is. Um, even if it wasn't optimal, I think I would still that's kind of the way I am. Um, but it's good to see that when that happens, people resonate with it rather than sort of, you know, something else. So,
0: right. So that that the whole that empathy is always leading with empathy. And you know, from our brief interaction so far, you can see definitely that you lead with your heart on your sleeve. Thanks. And um, you know, and being able to really just from your own personal experiences of what you grew up with, and being able to see what it's like, and you know, especially now you see the twenty-first century, and especially into twenty twenty-one, where people are more open to talking about their trauma, more yeah. open to talking about their mental health and the challenges, which is the most yeah. people think too, right? Yeah. I think we definitely have to make a separation: what's real trauma, not trauma, because trauma is okay. a very generalized word right now. Okay. But it's more—it's so helpful and beautiful to see how even companies are embracing and, and talking about in the open in yeah. over there. Yeah,
1: at least you know, small companies like Pymetrics. So
0: <laughs> small, amazing companies are making a no, big thank uh, you. Companies.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
0: well I want to talk about your early days. You sure. know, you were 37 when you started Pymetrics. Yep. You left the whole field of education mm-hmm. uh, academia um, we, if you want you could tap into that because I'm sure that's probably recorded in multiple places mm-hmm. of why you left it. If not, you could tap into it. But you're you're 37. Mm-hmm. You're divorced. Mm-hmm. You have a seven-year-old girl,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Mm-hmm. You have everything stacked against you, you know. Especially mm-hmm. if it was founded in two thousand and fifteen, where it wasn't mm-hmm. common to have, right. you know, multiple female founders. I mean, right. you're probably, I mean, on top of my head, I can maybe think of maybe ten like mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: that. Yeah. Yep.
0: Why? Why? Like what was that urge that push to go ahead and say let me try go ahead i I mean i know you're an overachiever (laughs) on our work everything like that but
1: right like why didn't i pick something easier my dad asked me the same question actually so (laughs) it was so funny you know because i so i transitioned out of academia through the business school at harvard um and you know my dad who's a you know sort of um very traditional italian man thought, oh, finally, you know, my daughter's going to go to business school and get like a real, a a regular career. You know, he always thought science was sort of like this. We don't have any scientists in my family. So, um, so then when I told him that I was going to start a company, he's like, oh, Frida, do you think that's a good idea? Like (laughs) very concerned. (laughs) He's like, he he didn't really say like, didn't you come here to get a real job? But I think he basically, you know, sort of implied that. um, Look, I think at the end of the day, I left academia for a variety of reasons, mostly because I want, I I went into academia, as I told you, because I saw, you know, a close relative struggle with mental illness and I wanted to find a cure. (laughs) Then I realized after 10 years of studying the brain that a cure probably wasn't going to happen, unfortunately. Um, And so then I became frustrated because I was like, you know, brain imaging is amazing, but unless you want to start poking electrodes in people's brains, it's actually not a place where you can sort of and do anything right um and as a total sidebar i'll never forget having the conversation with ed boyden at mit who basically you know was all about optogenetics and he had you know sort of developed this technique um you know that sort of if you you know shine light on part of the brain you can activate um you know certain aspects of those neurons and you know he was telling me like oh well the gating factor to getting this to become more mainstream is there not enough neurosurgeons in the country and I was like okay I don't want to go into like you know a field where the gating factor to some sort of helping people is the number of neurosurgeons in the country so um so I just realized like okay well I want to have more impact with you know this cool science that we've developed I really want to help people how can I do that so I went to business school and then I saw recruiting firsthand, and then I thought to myself, okay, well, there are, and the, there were several things I saw about recruiting. One is that it was very resume-based, right? Like, And everyone knew it was on someone's resume. That wasn't the hard part of what they were trying to figure out. The hard part of what they were trying to figure out is all the sort of emotional component of who someone is. The second thing is, you know, you saw bias. I mean, you saw age bias. You saw gender bias. You saw, you know, racial bias. And you couldn't ever, like, say for sure, but it was, like, happening enough that you kind of suspected it. Um, and then, you know, of course, you don't see, to your point, like a lot of women, certainly not single moms, like, you know, represented in sort of, you know, general tech entrepreneurship. So all of those things made me realize, like, we have a solution that could really help sort of undermine bias of all kinds, bias against age, ethnicity, gender, you know, uh, you know, disability, all types of bias, right? Um, and I truly believe in that, Um and it could really help people. And I'm kind of uniquely positioned to do this, right? Because of my background. So that's what led me to want to start Pymetrics. I just saw this amazing opportunity, you know? And, um, you know, and again, I think that like you start out with this amazing idea and then you realize, wow, it's really hard to like <laughs> do it, actually, you know, make it work. Um, but I'm still inspired all the time, you know? And, um, and of course there's always bumps in the road and, you know, every day is a new bump and the bigger you get, the sort of the bumps are, you know, more you feel them more. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it was just being inspired by the potential to, to actually help people, you know, and the more I've done this work, I think I've just been become even more passionate about the mission. I think at the beginning I was like, yeah, it's sort of like an interesting sort of scientific concept. There's bias. We're going to remove it. yeah, hopefully I'll help people. But the more we've done this work, the more we've seen companies using pymetrics, like higher, like I'll never forget the first time. One of our, you know, early clients um, told us the story, which is that after using Pymetrics, they had to change their relocation policies for interns because unbeknownst to them, they had been hiring such a economically non diverse pool of people they had been going to 10 core schools hiring people mostly from middle class or upper class, you know, or, or higher backgrounds. And then they started using biometrics and all of a sudden they were hiring people that had literally never been on a plane before, um, whose parents couldn't afford to help them, you know, rent an apartment and get more furniture because maybe their parents didn't have that, you know. And it was really like a goosebump moment of like, I have now actually allowed people who previously were not allowed into this workforce, um, you know, an entry point, you know, not I personally, but like our technology, right. And, you know, seeing all of the ways in which people, you know, have increased, you know, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, you know, diversity of all types to me is really inspiring and has just led me to want to do more in that area. So again, how did I end up going down this path when it didn't seem very easy? It's just, again, it's, you know, just being very passionate about, you know, what we're trying to do. Um, And then at the end of the day, like, I kind of call it a disease, like I have a disease of wanting to help people. And sometimes I wish I didn't because not a disease is too strong a word. But sometimes I'm like, why can't I just want to like, I don't know, like, cut grass or, you know, whatever, like do something that like, (laughs) seems a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, because, again, I think trying to fix problems in the world is, is, is can be challenging, you know, because the world is set up a certain way. and, And oftentimes, it's not by accident, it's by design, you know, so you're kind of butting up against you know, structures that have been around for a long time and hard to change, but I think it's worth it in the end. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it, so.
0: Wow, wow. <laughs> I hope you stick with it until 180 years old, you know?
1: Well, you know, I don't know if my longevity is gonna go that, that that far, but um, but I'm I'm sticking to it, so.
0: incredible! you know, the only is, when I you hear you talk more and more and more, you hear a few themes I constantly hear. So a big theme mm-hmm. obviously is empathy. Mm-hmm. Another theme I hear, obviously, is resilience. A lot of resilience they had, mm-hmm. um, and obviously wanting to do good and make an impact. Mm-hmm. And that only, you know, the full circle is that only could that someone could only have that if they had to be resilient themselves in their own lives. And if someone could yep. only have that they had to know what a true uh, having true empathy towards someone else. And yep. obviously, which makes the, our upbringing everything like it. But it's just incredible to hear it, how you. It's not something. You, it's actually who you are, and it's actually mm-hmm. practical on a daily basis. Where. Yep you know, in your startup life, and your personal life, and, and everything else over there. It's, yeah. it's yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, well, and, and I think it just goes back to sort of, you know, my childhood, where when you see someone who, you know, is so impaired that, you know, they're not able to work, they're not able to, you know, like, you know, just so impaired, you, you really developed a sense of, I don't want to call it survivor's guilt, that might sound too strange, but you really think, like, wow, I'm so lucky. <laughs> I know this sounds weird, but like, I'm so lucky in comparison, you know, and then you think to yourself, like, what can I do to help people that, that are, you know, not as, as fortunate. And again, again, I didn't grow up in poverty. I didn't grow up in a war zone. So those were not the types of misfortunes that I saw, but I think there's a lot, you know, again, it's back to this piece of like, I think, um, you know, just feeling like, um, there are lots of things one can do in life. Um, and there's lots of suffering in the world. So, whatever we can do to, to lessen that, I think, is, is a good thing. Anyways, this is very serious. We should go on to light topics. Otherwise, your audience <laughs> will be like, this is depressing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on the contrary, I think this will help some more people than talking about the typical boring stuff, you know?
1: Okay, all right, fine.
0: <laughs> so, so, then how do you educate your children now? I mean, I mean
1: yeah, you know, I think that's a good question, right? Because my kids, you know, for better or worse, like all three of them well, don't have not had, you know, to to deal with, you know, such upfront, you know, adversity. Um, and uh, so that's a really good question. I think about that a lot. I do instill in them that, you know, I think, you know, people who grew up with a lot of resources, you know, then I think it's our job to, um, to, to. To find ways to to improve society for the better, right? Because again, we have to be aware that those resources are not equally distributed, and therefore, I think it's our job to um, to to do a lot, you know, with those resources. Otherwise, I think it's you know, it's just, yeah. I don't I don't think that's that that's the message that you know I hope to to impart to my kids, you know. So,
0: so then, let me ask you. You know, you 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 leave obviously college academia. Were you making maybe you know I don't know forty thousand dollars a year, let's say thirty-seven, uh, yep, seven thousand dollars, hundreds mm-hmm. of thousand dollars in debt. Who knows, you know, if Harvard's not coming after you still. Yeah.
1: I, I had a fellowship, so luckily there was no debt. But yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Let me imagine, right? You, yep. And now you are on the polar opposite of that. The polar opposite, right? If we could be totally frank, open. No, you have a successful company. Um, you know, I haven't checked your own personal financial statement. Send it to me afterwards, but like, yep. you're. <laughs> I pull the opposite yeah it's
1: a different situation for sure yeah
0: what's your feelings about that and like you're
1: no different than what i said before i think that it's just even more incumbent upon me to um you know to fight the good fight you know what i mean and not to take up lawn mowing not that there's not difficulty in lawn mowing but like and i'm using that as a silly example but like something that maybe potentially had you know the less ability to you know to give to give back so i do think that that is um you know, for better or worse I think that that just makes it more important for me in any case that you know this this idea of giving back and I think look and I think it's a really interesting time for that because and I, and I wonder about this sometimes because you know we've had the philanthropic model of giving back right which is you know you take money from wealthy people and then you give it back right that's that's a model that's been around for a long time um, but that to me and again there's wonderful things about that model so I'm not trying to trash it but it only goes so far, right? Because you know, again, it's like teaching someone to fish rather than um you know giving them fish. I think in some cases, some of some of it could be more of the latter, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have sort of social impact ventures like Pymetrics, right? Where we're clearly a social impact venture where yes, we are for profit, but we have an a, you know a stated and very by design social impact um uh, sort of you know uh, intentionality about, you know, the product that we've created. Um, and I think, you know, that, that hasn't been around that long. Right. And so I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how well that as a, as an asset class does. Right. And I think that, you know, you see a couple of things with, with that as an asset class in the sense that, you know, sometimes things that are not really social impact, I think get labeled that, um, and, and, you know, funded as such. Um, and then I think, you know, other times I think, you know, it, it's, I think it's just going to be interesting to see how it all plays out because I think there's a lot of potential and promise. I think sometimes people are somewhat skeptical because, you know, especially if you think about technology companies, they don't have the best uh, reputation in the general media, I would say. Right. Um, And even though, no, it's so funny whenever somebody says, oh, well, you're big tech. I'm like, man, we're little to medium tech. We're definitely not big tech, you know? So. (laughs) <laughs> um, but regardless of whether you're little, medium, or big tech, like tech in general has sort of, you know, you know, in the public eye is, you know, something to be suspicious of many times. And so I think it's interesting being a social impact venture that's also a technology venture because we absolutely practice what we preach. We show all of the results that we have. We and I think that there's still always this like a little bit of an inherent skepticism in like, can a for-profit company, a for-profit tech company, you know, actually do. Good in the world and again you know my hope is that there are enough examples of these types of companies where you know public skepticism you know diminishes um because i think it is so important to have that model right like i think philanthropy is important but that can't be the only way that we try to improve on the world right um and so i think it is really important to have social impact ventures but you know that's a new thing and so we'll see kind of how they they end up doing
0: right it's a funny thing you know charity is such a funny thing because as incredible incredible, incredible as it is, it's also the most selfish thing possible. Because when you think about it, who's benefiting more? The giver always walks out feeling so much greater, yeah. More confident than yeah. the person receiving it all the time. So it's not, charity is the most beautiful thing yeah. possible. Like you're able yeah. to help somebody and you feel good about it, but it's the most selfish yeah. thing. At the same time, I think when we have a very um, when it, you talk about, you know, giving philanthropy, you know, it's not you have to understand, it's a two-way streeter because the giver has an obligation to give. And the mm-hmm. receiver has an obligation to receive. it's mm-hmm. not a one-way give or take relationship. It's a full circle type of thing where I'm fulfilling something you're missing, and you're fulfilling something that I'm missing. And it comes around right. circle around there. Right. And right. you know, if we we treat philanthropy not in like in a way that obviously people have what they're passionate about, their personal projects, and things sure. like it's incredible. But in a way that really that we're making the world difference, and I'm here to fulfill the obligation of my giving, and you're you're uh, you're here to feel the obligation of receiving, not just me, I'm the better man over okay, because I'm giving. It, right. It's a whole different paradigm shift to the way how we work, look at it and everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, there's different models of philanthropy, obviously, and there's all sorts of, you know, philanthropic, you know, venues for actually, you know, in quotes, teaching how to fish, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there's no, it's not so much that, um, it, it's not so much that I have a problem with, Yeah, you know, I, I think philanthropy is great. And, you know, we're engaged, you know, I'm engaged in a lot of philanthropic activities. It's more just that like, for example, like the type of structural barriers that we see in hiring um are not are not going to be fixed by philanthropy. They actually have to be fixed by you know um a whole host of things, including better technology and you know legislative changes and all sorts of stuff. So I think that you know, I guess all I'm trying to say is I think there are I, what I've learned right in my last, you know, uh, 10 years of doing this uh, is just that there are problems, hard problems that I don't think that just a philanthropic approach can solve. And and part of that is, you know, actually building um, technology and or, you know, having business models or whatever, like basically engaging in sort of the, the realm of business to solve these problems. But again, I think there is a lot of rightful skepticism of these types of business models, because I think they can be used as sort of you know, ethics washing, greenwashing, all of that good stuff, where somebody just slaps a label on it and actually is doing a bunch of stuff that maybe is not so great. So, and you know, that's unfortunate. So,
0: one hundred percent. So the question is, that do, do companies have an obligation to do good? Now, we talk about individual people, yeah. CEOs, founders. Yes, they could do it in their own personal. Yeah. but the Companies themselves have an obligation to do good.
1: I mean, they don't. I mean, in my mind. In my mind yes but i don't think that's the common opinion do you know what i mean like i think that no i think most people think companies have the obligation to make money right i mean that's what they're there for right um and that's the capitalism um so i think that you know the prevailing prevailing thought would be no um you know obviously i think that you know and, and i've heard this a lot i mean i've heard this a lot you know from from certain circles in any case that and again i don't think it's a widely held opinion but you know, I think there is sort of, you know, whether whether you want to call it conscious capitalism or whatever the framing is, right, I think there has to be, in my mind, a shift towards realizing that, you know, pure capitalism um, is not, is, and again, I'm not arguing for socialism or communism, I'm just saying, you know, sheer sort of market-driven capitalism, I don't think is, is the right way to go, and I think there's a lot of economic sort of arguments for that, and people have made it. There's this woman called Heather Boucher that wrote this book called, I think it's Unbound, um, sort of talking about sort of when you take it to its extreme, it actually just doesn't do great things for the world. Again, not that I don't think we need a book uh, to tell us that I think you can just go look around. But um, but so again, I think, no, most people would say that's not what they're here for. And that's not what capitalism tells you. But I think I personally think we're entering a phase where, you know, we have to rethink whether just sheer capitalism is, is the right model. You know, right. again, not arguing that socialism or capital or communism is, I think it's more just again, there's these labels that are getting thrown out, you know, including conscious capitalism and, and all that stuff. So,
0: right. And I think only, in, you know, time will tell. I mean, I'm, I'm, you're obviously the smart one over here. So I'm listening to you. I'm getting information from you over here, okay. but you're know, going back to your, you know, there's three pivotal moments in a startup. Mm-hmm. obviously, founding day, mm-hmm. the first customer, yep. first main customer, and the first angel investment.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Remember who your first angel investor was?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: How'd that go down? Because you bootstrap for the first six, for seven months, I'm assuming.
1: For for fifteen months, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, look, I think that you know we had met just you know people that were believers in the technology and and believers in you know myself and my co-founder, and and that's sort of how it went. I mean, I think that's a pretty typical, you know, founding or not founding story, but angel first angel investor story. You know, and and it's really interesting because you know, a year or two ago, there was a woman that I knew from MIT who was starting a very cool um, dyslexia, she's a dyslexia researcher, and she was starting um, essentially a company to do early screening of dyslexia. And again, my my oldest has dyslexia, and so it's something that, you know, is near and dear to my heart. Um, and, you know, she, I remember her sending out this email and, you know, sort of explaining the company and everything else. And I was like, oh, I'll I'll totally angel invest in your company, Right. And she was like, I remember just her reaction was like, well, you're the first person, whatever. And then it ended up that they didn't need, you know, my angel investment. Um, But she was like, you know, you believing in us, you putting in that first, you know, small amount of money was like what allowed us to go to to go forward. And I completely remember that feeling of like the first person that just says, I believe in you enough that I'm going to put in, you know, some small amount of money, like, you know, 10K, 25K, whatever it is, right. To, To an angel investor, that's a small amount of money, right. Um, and, you know, it was such an amazing thing to be in that position, to be like, wow, I was that person. And now they don't even need my money because they've gone and raised, because it's such a cool idea. They don't, they don't need it. And that was such a great feeling. Right. Um, so again, I think it's, it's, it was a very heartwarming moment for me to be able to be in that position for someone else, you know,
0: but you only got that position 15 months after you started the company.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, we were in an, interesting position where we were able to bootstrap by basically having um, a, you know, a a hedge fund, basically kind of use our technology um, and, you know, pay us enough that we could survive for 15 months on a, on a check for the, that they gave us. So, yeah.
0: So what was it being like being a grown woman, 38, right? Whole new career. You know, like we mentioned before, you know, if you're living your daughter, but not only that, you you bunked up together if you're co founder in the same apartment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely, I call it the two women in an algorithm phase of the company where, you know, we were sharing an apartment, my, my daughter, um was living in this at the time um it, you know it was pretty crazy i mean it was very like talk about like not being able to get away from work it was you know basically impossible um yeah it was tough i mean it was like definitely not easy but it was also very exciting i mean it's just again it's like back to there's the excitement and then there's the you know hard reality and i think they've always kind of gone you know hand in hand so
0: right for sure did you get did you share duties and babysitting
1: no <laughs> My co founder was like a dyed in the wool MIT engineer who, like, would stay up until four in the morning and, like, we'd be up at seven, like, tiptoeing around the apartment, be like, don't wake her up, you know? Like, so no, there was no babysitting.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you have so many, you know, different pivotal moments in your life Mm -hmm. and career. I mean, so many. um, Yeah. I can't even, and the amount that I've heard already, and I'm assuming you probably have a list of them if you can even recall them. Are there anything really stand out they really shaped they shaped who you are
1: no i mean look i think all of the you know things we talked about really um we all have pivotal moments we all have lots of things that shape who we are you know what i mean and um and i think some of the you know i think what's interesting i will say this i think some of the moments that are hardest are actually the most pivotal and shape us the most you know what i mean so like again it's, sounds silly. Like, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like, you know, so even though you're at the time you're going through it, you're like, wow, this is, I hate this. This is so awful. Like, so uncomfortable. Like I, am I doing the right thing? Like, blah, 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 all this stuff. You know, like, I think the most amount of growth happens during difficult times. And that doesn't mean that you just want your life to be like one unending saga of difficult times, because like, you know, you need a break. You need to be like, oh, that was hard. I need to take a break. You know, so I'm not suggesting that it's like, you know, 24 seven should be like that. But I do think again in my life historically i would say that you know from the hardest times have come you know the most personal growth and sort of coming out the other side stronger better all the rest of it so and i don't think i've learned yet because every new hard time i'm like oh this sucks like why do i have to do this this is you know i get angry and upset and everything else but um so i haven't learned to gracefully accept that as i should um you know but i think it's definitely true you know and hopefully you know and hopefully that resonates with people that you know you generally if you can go through a hard time and then learn from it and then realize that you know you did something really hard and you know you're able to you know overcome I think it it helps. And I think the other thing is just that usually when something's really hard, I mean it can be hard for just basic reasons like I don't have money or something like that. But it can also be hard because it's pushing you outside of your comfort zone. You know what I mean? In the sense that like we all want to be comfortable on some level. I want to be comfortable when I go to bed at night. I want to be comfortable when I eat my lunch, whatever. But I think just being comfortable doesn't actually make you a better person, right? So I'm gonna actually tell you a funny related story. So I went to a wedding recently, a, a Jewish wedding, And the rabbi, I had an actually like laugh out loud moment at this wedding because, you know, the rabbi was going on. And then he's like, you know, some people make the big mistake of marrying people that make them happy. Okay. This is during the vows. I was like laughing so hard. I knew where he was going with it. His next line was like, you know, really, you need to marry someone who's going to challenge you and that ultimately will make you happy. But that line alone just was like, (laughs) I was like, you did not just say that in the middle of wedding vows. But he's right in the sense that I think. And it's true for life in general. Like, I think we have to challenge ourselves um, because challenging ourselves, I think, makes us better people um, rather than just seek, you know, comfort. But it's also, it's just, it. you know, you also need respite in between, you know, because you need to kind of like, get, get get your feet under you again. So.
0: Exactly. You know, it's like you mentioned, you now don't constantly seek out that discomfort because yeah. then you're always going to be there. But the only yeah. reason why through going through a, a low is in order to reach a higher place than yep. you before the low. Yeah,
1: you know,
0: all that. But yep. as beings, you know, we were wired in a way that we just run away from discomfort. We run away from the, all those feelings and everything totally. comes up.
1: Totally. And and I think the world has to kind of force us there, you know. And I think that, um, you know, and when you're forced in that position, I think hopefully you you know you accept the challenge and you do it. But yeah. Wow.
0: So what is it? What is your, your TED speech? I mean, because you have so many avenues to go <laughs> to different ways. Like
1: um, <laughs> again, you know, running a company, having three kids, you know, trying to see my husband sometimes like I don't have not found time for that TED speech. I mean, maybe maybe at some point I will. I don't know. I have I don't have a TED speech yet. I'm just, uh, you know, um, I don't know. You would have to tell me. You'll have to tell me what the what the TED speech is. I'm not sure. I will say I think one thing that you know, um, like even in this podcast, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be totally transparent here. I'm having these moments of like, oh my God, I can't believe I've said all these things. I can't believe I've been so transparent. I need to tell, tell, no, I've been like, I'm going to have to tell Ephraim that after this podcast, he's got to kill it because this is just way too vulnerable, like in a public, public setting. Um, you know, and I always, I have this expression that I say, I feel like I've just like, you know, I, I've like, I'm, I'm naked. I feel like I'm naked. Um, And there are people who, you know, can take that and I won't say misuse it, but like, you know, use it for like to make fun of you or to this or that. But I also think that like it hopefully resonates with people. I think what I'm trying to say is like if I had a TED talk, I think it would be about transparency, like the value of transparency, because it is very hard. It's very hard to be open. It's very hard to be authentic and honest and open because you know you're sort of subjecting yourself to people being like, oh, and like just I don't know, making fun of you or just saying things that aren't nice or you know whatever the case may be, right? Um, and it will hurt more because you've like put your your real self out rather than your sort of facade, right. But at the same time, I think um, the flip side is when you do that, I think people really it inspires people to do the same. And I think that's what's important to me. you know it's just sort of like inspiring people to do something that I think in the end of the day, um makes helps them you know um and and you know in in and also just helps in general like make the world a more you know more more transparent equitable place so that would be my TED talk i don't know exactly know like how that's going to come to be but
0: we're definitely going to make it happen but like maybe (laughs) one life is so much more important than a thousand you know negative sayers because they have nothing to do with their life and they troll people you know yeah
1: i know I
0: know, true. It just boils down to people that have that is because obviously jealousy, people that yeah. are comfortable with themselves, people that yeah. have been through their own trauma that's still trying yeah. to figure out, you
1: know? Yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. But I think we all have that fear, right? Of like, I'm gonna expose myself, I'm gonna say something that's like, you know, coming from a place of, you know, uh, you know, who I really am. And then that experience will happen. And then it will just not feel great. You know what I mean? And all I'm trying to say is like, I'm actively struggling with it right now in this podcast. I'm like, Oh, I've said all these things, (laughs) but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's the right, it's the right thing to do. Um, because all of the things we've talked about, whether it's, you know, mental illness or, um, whether it's a family members or your own, or, you know, whatever the case may be, I think it's just important topics to discuss. And I think that people don't talk about them, um, because they don't want to, you know, have some negative reaction. Someone, someone saying something negative, you know. So,
0: you know, it's like we said in the beginning of the of this show, where you know you, Bradfield wrote wrote something over there, and you, yeah. and you mentioned that it's not spoken about enough. I think a lot of the things we spoke about over here are not spoken about enough. That have to be brought yeah. to the surface. Every, yeah. every topic we spoke about. Thanks. So then, what what do we tell a young Frida? You know, she has the ability. like You know, imagine your daughter now. That's you know about to go into college, and then she's gonna graduate college in two, three years yeah. from now. So imagine young Frida. She has the ability to. Yeah. You know go down this whole academia route that she did she could go yeah. she had enough of all those academia she could go work in the local starbucks next to you know mm-hmm. harvard over there she could even you know, maybe join the u.s soccer team because we need mm-hmm. some good help over there or you know are we going the entrepreneurial route what type of message do we tell her
1: i mean i think the message is again i found sound like a broken record but i think the hardest part of being young is i don't think you've really figured out who you are yet and i think even now a, you know, the age that I'm at now, which wouldn't be considered young, like I still haven't totally figured out who, who you are, but I think it's a process. I think you learn more and more about yourself mm-hmm. and who you are. Um, and so I think that that's what we can help people be as at the earliest age possible. I think it's like just being okay. And, and actually not only being okay, but really accepting and loving who they are. You know what I mean? And I think that's really hard because I think in general, you know, probably harder for some than others. But my point is simply like, you know, there are all these societal expectations for men, for women, for this, for that, you know? And I think that like so much of being a teenager, I watched my 15 year old and I'm like, oh God, like, you know, high school was tough, you know, cause it's just a constant stream of like, this is what you should be. So I think whatever, the best thing we can do is, and, and especially having three girls, like, and seeing each one of them have very different personality, um, and helping them, be who they are right so it's this question of like don't try don't think you have to be this this and this just because you know you were told that so it's it's i think your job as a parent is to accept your kid for who they are which hopefully doesn't isn't too hard help them accept themselves for who they are which you know may maybe you know hard or or not hard um and then just really help them learn who they are because a lot of times i don't think people really know who they are when they're young which is normal right you don't know and so helping them on a path that allows themselves to be really who they are you know and i think that's so important because i think no matter like it's back to the the discussion at the very beginning like whether you have a you know (laughs) extensive educational history or not or whatever like i think so long as it Resonates with who you are as a person, then it's the right choice for you. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, to- uh, totally, totally. Wow. I mean, first of all, your parenting skills, I'm sure, are definitely on par. You know, like, but th- th- you have to. Allow them- I'll
1: have my 15 year old come next time. <laughs> she will be like, "Oh, my mom. <laughs> she forgets everything. I have to remind her about things ten thousand times. <laughs> so she'll tell you all the ways in which I fail as a parent. So.
0: Part of the learning experience. Part of for the sure. experience. For sure. And like we have to allow ourselves, like you mentioned, younger selves, to make those mistakes because it's part of the experience we become. Yeah, for sure. Wow. I feel. I don't know how to thank you. I feel so much smarter, than, you know, now than before I walked into the conversation. I've learned a tremendous amount. A tremendous amount.
1: I'm glad. So, I'm glad. I'm glad.
0: You know, inspired and hearing about your, your journey and hearing about everything we spoke about, all the this important topics. Yep. I, no doubt in my mind that this is going to inspire thousands of people to take control of their life, wherever they're holding in entrepreneurship, outside entrepreneurship, but it's going to give them the ability to get them inspired to open up about their own personal journey. Not to have the shame, the guilt, and everything else that comes together with it, Mm -hmm. but to allow themselves to really experience and allow themselves to relate to someone else and to really open up so they can better their own lives. So Frida, I wanna thank you so, so, so much.
1: Frida, I wanna thank you.
0: No, and we're definitely gonna have to do it another one because there's so many more topics I talk about the second segment of, you know. <laughs> the Sign you.
1: me up, sign me up.